0: Ladies and gentlemen, welcome to the Bengalis in New York show. My name is Arik, and uh, we be repping it for you know the Bronx, Manhattan, Brooklyn, Queens, Staten Island, and all over the world. So welcome and enjoy. Brian, welcome. I, uh, I watched your short film the other day about the uh, war of 1971. What made you? Uh, what made you make a film about that?
1: Well, a couple of things. Obviously, I'm Bangladeshi, so there's that. Um, I, you know, I grew up with those stories. Um, obviously, I, I was too. I was not born in that time. I was born. 88 so my obviously my father lived through that my mother lived through that so I grew up with stories about it so it's certainly something that was in my mind but I didn't come to really understand the full story of what happened there um, until I got more older and I started to understand oh so this is what really happened this was the history of it and also the the, the U.S. angle to it became something I got interested in I read Gary j bass's book um, the Blood telegram that is it, i think it was shortlisted for a Pulitzer Prize in twenty thirteen really chronicles the u s involvement there, so that's something that got my interest in and then also I'm someone who's fascinated by um American foreign policy particularly it, it just it's one of those under of my fascination. I used to read about just CIA history and things like that, and I'm always very very fascinated about what the u s does abroad, particularly in interventions. Uh, government overthrows and things. And I think it's a fascinating topic. It's the kind of topic a lot of people don't like to talk about it because it feels so like far away and like, ah, oh, why should I care? But I personally find it very fascinating. So I got interested in, oh, what did the U.S. do here? So it was a combination of my identity as a Bangladesh person, also my identity as an American and knowing how these two countries at one point intersected. So that's largely what the film is about. It's about... That history and what happened in Bangladesh, the experience of the people there, as well as uh, what was the U.S. doing. That was my inspiration. Yeah, I liked
0: the film. I liked how you, you, you had uh, sort of the uh, w- the reactions from Nixon and JFK and Kissinger. So what you were saying about intervention, I'm just curious, this is nothing to do with the film, but in your research in interventions that the U.S. Um, has had in all, all over the world, I guess I'm trying to figure. Out, you know, we're always portrayed. The U.S. is always portrayed as, as like this evil empire, and that's definitely true. We've done a lot of bad things. So, but like, I mean, it's it's weird to ask this, but what what do you think of the majority of these interventions have been self-serving or?
1: That's a good question. You could look at a lot. You have to t- look at a lot of these. Um, I do generally believe that a lot of interventions, a lot of the like, for a long time, I grew up in America. And a lot of times, you know, you educate, you're educated, you think like, oh, America does things for you know eventually even though we do wrong things we had the good intention in heart i'm someone who tends to believe that it's not necessarily that they had a good intention and it's not necessarily i would would say something that's evil evil is a very hard thing to like define yeah i think the united states does things that are not necessarily good intention you you don't have to say that it's evil but if you say it's self-serving like if i do something to somebody else that is self-serving it may not be evil but it doesn't mean it's good so Hmm. like for example vietnam that's one where it's portrayed as, oh, we're trying to save the world from communism or not, wasn't really a reality. There was a lot of political and mm-hmm. economic interest there. So there's a lot of that, even if like in Afghanistan, Iraq, things like that, there are self-serving interests. So you can take that however you want. If you believe that acting selfishly in that way is evil, that's on you. I don't make that, I never make that out. I personally do not believe that there's something inherently evil. I think there is a little bit of moral, the moralization that happens here. Like, oh, there are people who kind of flaunt it as like, oh, we're the morally just nation. Like, yeah, we do bad things but would you rather uh, china do it or would you rather russia do it? those people are way worse than us and i mm. i would say no we're actually exactly the same as them we sell they self-serve we self-serve and that's kind of my perspective so i maybe maybe in some way you could say my angle is kind of sort of debunk a little bit of the chauvinism uh mm. that exists in, in maybe in american culture but that's uh and that's never to say that you know Anything or any nation is evil in any way. Um, I think you think take things by a case by case-by-case basis, and there's a yeah. lot of moral, so much moral gray area. Um, yeah, yeah yeah uh, and it also
0: differs by administration drastically i mean you talk about you know the u.s foreign policy under carter versus george w bush i mean they're directly drastically, drastically different right so going back to the war you know, the u.s u.s wasn't very uh, u.s as far as i know wasn't very supportive of Bangladesh in that war so do you why why weren't they strategically speaking yeah
1: well yeah so this is what i got from a lot of the research and i tried to con- well the thing is the film doesn't I I don't have the time to really get into it in the film, but if you read Gary J. Bass's book, basically the history is actually the United States was pretty much aligned with Pakistan for a little bit of a while. It actually goes back in an interesting way because uh, you could go, you have to kind of go back a little bit to the British because the British partitioned India. Right. And in a way, uh, I think the British antagonized India a little bit by wanting this partition to happen and dividing the Hindus and the Muslims in a way. And they kind of instigated. And if you look at the history, Britain and America were very friendly to for a, for a long time in the beginning. Because in a way, it antagonized India in a bit. That was, India was very anti-imperialistic. They overthrew this British government. Obviously, the U.S. wasn't involved there. But you will see throughout history, like in Iran, when they overthrew the Shah, the U.S. and British worked together to overthrow him. So they they, they became a little bit of a, a partners in in a kind of new Cold War era imperialism. So... When it came to pakistan when the cold war happened pakistan was perceived as sort of aligned with the um the western nato side and india always was kind of neutral and back then in the cold war it's like if you're not with us you're with the communists that's kind of what it always was Mm -hmm. and because india would not be anti-russia america and britain they would perceive as oh that must you you must be secretly communist in a way that that narrative existed for a long long time even to this day um there's tensions there so pakistan was always viewed as an ally because they're like oh you're religious because communism is also anti-religious and so hey you know pakistan you don't want communism they're going to take away your your islamic faith back in the day back before the days of the war on terror america used to support the radicalization of of islam because it used to be like yeah yeah the communists want to take away your religion we support these madrasas we support Mm -hmm. these mujahideen because you're anti-communist that's what they did in afghanistan so for a long time that was the alignment between the u.s and pakistan so they were friends naturally so when it came to 1971 when the elections happened and pakistan rejected it and the genocide broke out, America still had a partnership with Pakistan. And the real reason for why everything went down was because at that time, Nixon was trying to create his very, very famous opening into China. So people don't know this, but Henry Kissinger, he won a Nobel Peace Prize, right, for for opening up that channel to uh, China. There's that famous photograph of, I think, Nixon and Mao shaking hands or whatnot. You know, that, that won them their legacy, their Nobel Prize. They're famous for that. One of the greatest achievements in American foreign policy history. How did that happen? Pakistan brokered a back channel between Kissinger and uh, China and they were so desperate to make this happen. The economic benefits, the the victory of this happening was so huge for Kissinger and Nixon. They wanted this so badly and Pakistan said, yeah, we'll do this for you, but you need to help us out. We have this insurgency, we have these people in East Pakistan that are winning these elections and you know they're taking away our power, and we don't want to deal with them. Keep giving us these money and these weapons that you've been continuing to give us. We're going to back that on these people, and we will give you your China back China. And that's essentially the story. They wow. won their Nobel Peace Prize, and a bunch of Bangladeshis had to die in order for that to uh, go on go through. Wow, yeah. wow, that
0: that sounds like you've done just some deep research. That's some, what was one thing that really surprised you in your research.
1: Well, here's one thing that will surprise you. Not only was what they were doing uh, very not appropriate. They actually flagrantly broke the law, the United States. What they did was, when the genocide happened, the whole world saw this and said, Pakistan is doing something horrific here. America, you got to stop. You got to stop associating yourself with these friends of yours. And so Nixon and Kissinger, they were very, in, in closed doors, they were very adamant about continuing to so- support Pakistan. Pakistan was their was their was their friend and they're like we're gonna we're gonna help them we're gonna keep giving them these weapons but America cannot do it publicly because we will get scorched if we are handing over weapons and money to these killers. So what America did was, and this was signed off, I believe in the book it says the decision was signed off by George H.W. Bush at the time, who was an advisor, Alexander Haig, who was a secretary of something, he was a very high up person in Ronald Reagan. These people who are just in the Nixon administration who were going on to become big people, they signed off, and here's what They did. America could not give the money and weapons directly, so they had to launder it through Iran and Jordan. So, in other words, America being a world leader cannot give weapons to a bunch of killers. But Iran and Jordan can do it because who cares about Iran and Jordan? They're not, they're morally dubious people, right? So let let these people do it. So America gave a bunch of weapons and money to Iran and, and Jordan. By the way, remember that Iran had a puppet dictator at the time, mm-hmm. the, the Shah Pahlavi, who was over. as I mentioned, he was overthrown yeah, yeah. by them. So they said, here, our puppet, take these, mili- I forget what it was, it was like tanks, bombs, missiles, something, take these weapons, I'm giving them to you as aid, because I can give it to you, but then I want you to take those mu- and give it to Pakistan. So they laundered it through a middleman, so they didn't get caught giving it, but Iran and, and Jordan would do it for them. So this is detailed in the book, and it's set out flatly this was an illegal act of laundering and it was signed off by George Bush and Alexander Haig and Nixon and Kissinger as well so oh. Yeah, so you're basically laundering weapons to a, a serial killer. That's what they were doing. Yeah,
0: I don't even know. And I get what you're saying with laundering. I'm trying to think if it's even laundering is the right term. It's like dirtying, really. Yeah, right? well,
1: well, laundering is I know it's like, so, yeah. Yeah, I mean, I, I, that's, that's my term. I just use it. Gotcha. It means, but yeah, it's basically. But
0: a, I, I get what you're saying. That's fascinating. I had no idea. Wow. How, what's Where did you learn about, I know you're in school for, for film. You're, you're going to Hunter what sort of what sort of curriculum do they have in film school?
1: Well, it's interesting because uh, film school—I would say my film school is a little non-traditional. Um, the typical MFA, like a master's in film, you'll go there for like two full years. You'll you'll go through an intense program and you'll become like you'll make films. I do what's what is—it's interesting. It's the only one of it. It's the only one of its kind that I've ever found, and that's the reason I chose it because I wasn't able to leave my job. And go full time into filmmaking, um, as much as I would like to. I couldn't afford that. That's just it just It's something I couldn't do, but this program that I do is a part-time program designed for people who are working in the field somehow. And so the curriculum is a little different. They don't, they assume you kind of know some things already. And so they give you classes. I take classes in the nighttime and uh, evening and weekends. And so the curriculum is very, it's the most flexible program I've ever found in a typical program. It's not flexible. You're putting into an intense two-year program and you, you just do that. I can kind of pick and choose the things I want to do. And the focus of my program is documentary nonfiction, even though you can do whatever you can do dramatic if you want, but it's focus on documentary. But I've taken classes, it's very, it's very non-structured. I'm there's a basic like documentary one where you have to understand what documentary filmmaking is. There's a, a visual, because film is a visual medium, you have to take a kind of a visual media course that like, mm. said, like visual art. And then from there, you can kind of take whatever you want. I've taken developing and producing class, which teaches you how to develop a script, pitch it, make the budget. i take taken a class on access, which is about how people with disabilities can find new ways of creating media for people with disabilities, which is a really interesting class. Right now, I'm taking uh, something called Third Cinema, which looks at third world cinema, particularly the kind of cinema that's very I would say rejects mainstream cinema and a lot of it is very it's called a decolonial narrative. In fact my film that I that you saw feel, fits into that uh, narrative. so it's, it's about like finding ways that sort of in, in the third world that sort of reject models that have been passed on to them through like other foreign influences like mainstream influences that came from like United States or Europe. It's called a decolonial t- uh, approach mm. to cinema. But that that's just one class that looks at that movement, that history. and uh, And right now I'm taking a studio class where I'm working on another documentary, a bigger project about local politics in New York. So. Yeah, so that's, I, an that's an interesting helpful. one. That's yeah, an interesting one. And there's a, lot,
0: there's a lot going on in there, it's, uh, for the, especially for the Bengali community. For the documentary specifically, do you think documentaries can be objective? That's
1: a really good question. I'm glad you asked that in, 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 in what you sent to me because um, it's something I grapple with a lot because it comes down to the, the matter of truth. Because there, there's a great, <laughs> I don't know if you've seen, have you seen Indiana Jones? Yeah, um, of course. Yeah. Yeah, there's a scene in Indiana Jones because Indiana Jones, he's an archaeologist, right? There's a scene in the movie where he's teaching a class about archaeology, and he says very didactically to the class, "He's like, archaeology is about facts. It's not about truth. Truth and facts are two different things. And so he's like, archaeology is about facts. So in a way, I kind of took that as truth is interesting because when you talk about truth, people talk about their personal truth, their emotional truth, and that is true. Truth can have a lot of uh, a truth for you, for example. You have your own personal truth, and I could have my own personal truth, and that is what drives a lot of art, believe it or not. Art in general, whether it's fiction or drama or documentary or whatever, it's driven by the creator's own truth. And sometimes that truth can be, It doesn't. it's not necessarily factual. And that's not to say documentary cannot be factual or should not be factual or that not being factual is a virtue in any way. But there is a difference between facts and truths, but that does not necessarily diminish a creator's truth. It's a good question about whether documentaries can be objective. I think objectivity is I think objectivity some people define objectivity as simply being neutral, not taking any stance, just looking mm. at something without any without any biases, and that's in 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 the cases in which you can do that, I think that's something one ought to aim for but i increasingly what i find it's very hard to not take a side in, yeah. in many situations in life sometimes also also it
0: make documentaries 10 hours long right if we had to show both sides
1: that's such a good point and you're right because you know when i make doc- like when i was making this uh, little short film like god i could examine so many sides of, of, of this but at the end of the day i asked myself what's the most important thing i need to convey yes i can convey everything that makes sense like everything that everyone was thinking at all times and Certainly, but to me, what was more important was like, what's the part that's not really told, that people don't really have an understanding of? Because a lot of this history is kind of washed away, and people seem to think like, okay, you know, these things happen, and people made their decisions because they had to make them, and they sort of let it go. But when you confront people with a side of the story that they don't normally see, and that was my my hope, because... I wanted even Bangladeshi people to see things in that film that they thought, oh, I didn't know that. Or, oh, was that really what happened? I, I think the, sometimes the most important thing is to show people something that they haven't seen before, which may mean like, oh, I have to not necessarily be objective, but I have to show you something that mm. maybe wasn't there before. And so that becomes the, an important matter. Mm. So yeah, I think you can be objective, but then the, then the question is, should you be objective? Then that comes down to a context and a personal um, a decision at that point.
0: Gotcha. There's a, in the in your doc, in your film uh, there's a little boy walking through a field, I think, and he's he has information coming at him from different angles. Is that is that boy you?
1: Yeah, I mean, I guess I guess I could look at it that way. Um, I think maybe in when I first conceived it, I wanted I wanted someone to represent either me or someone like me. Mm-hmm. So when I say someone like me, I would say someone who was, let's say, a Bangladeshi American, someone who doesn't really know the history or has a vague understanding of it. And I showed this film to one of my classmates and they said, oh, this is kind of like a walk through history. And I'm like, yeah, that's what it feels like. It's a walk through history. If you're someone who didn't know about it, you walk through it and you see it. It's supposed to be a little bit dreamlike as well you know there's different orientation changes and things jump around. I thought that was cool <laughs> yeah I, well, was I, cool. I, I didn't want it, I didn't want it to be just a boring lecture on what happened. I wanted it to be somewhat like oh this is kind of a fun thing to watch. but,
0: but was it timed I, I was I was trying to watch I didn't get a chance to watch, watch it again but I was trying to figure out was it timed? The portion when he's uh, upside down, like, was that timed?
1: That's a, well, I guess when you say timed, uh, there is, it was unintentional, but it is regular intervals in which a, ch- a change happens. So if you, if you, so if you look at it, it's not, it's not exact, but there are some intervals in, in which it is actually happening. And that was sort mm-hmm. of not intentional, but I did want it, some rhythm to be there.
0: What's your, what's your style of, of documentary? Who are some uh, your of your inspirations?
1: I get inspiration from both documentary and non-documentary. Yeah. Documentary. I think one of my, I you know if you know, there's a filmmaker, Werner Herzog. He's a German filmmaker who's um, who who who's been very successful at making both documentaries and dramatic films. Um, I'm trying to think, Yeah, you, you know, if you've never seen his work, you probably wouldn't recognize. Well, he made, for example, have you heard of that movie Grizzly Man? I've heard of it. Yeah, a guy who lived with grizzly bears until mm. one of them ate him. Yeah, it's a, it's a fascinating document. But he, he made that film. Yeah, I think it was, it got a lot of get nominated for some awards but there's a lot of for example mira nair is a uh, filmmaker that i really love she started out as a documentary filmmaker as well if you see salaam bombay it's it, that was a fictional film but it, it was done in a very documentary style mm. i'm sure like the uh, impoverished people in, in bombay sydney lumet is one of my favorite uh, filmmakers a new york filmmaker paul thomas anderson stanley kubrick you know obviously famous filmmaker. i love
0: paul thomas anderson yeah oh yeah Kubrick yeah Kubrick's and yeah interesting yeah i i yeah those are all I like that they're all different not to not um not typical and not mainstream for us Kubrick's kind of mainstream but but like it's uh that's cool, I like that I like things that are like obscure and like weird um what what's been your family's reaction to your filmmaking journey and just generally as a as a career well <laughs>
1: that's another huge that's, like, that's a yeah. huge conversation, too well, I know i you could talk to a lot of them because you, you, a lot of the guests you've had, they, I've yeah. heard a lot of them talk about like how their family perceives what they do. And I'm like, yeah, it's, it's the same conversation over and over okay. again. So honestly, I would tell you pretty much the same thing. Yeah. Oh, well, actually, it, the story would have to rewind back to you mentioned I was an actor first, and that's actually when it began. I started out, I discovered acting in high school and I was really passionate about it, but I was too afraid to do it. So mm. I started college as an engineering student. And then, <laughs> the story is very cliche, after one mm-hmm. year of being miserable in engineering, <laughs> I auditioned for the acting school and I got in and I changed my mm. major and I told my parents and they freaked out. They actually freaked out. My mom didn't talk to me for like, well, it was like two weeks they like gave me the silent treatment, but wow. it, they let me do it, but they were always... The brown person thing they're like okay do it but you know they they always had a look of the way they react to me is very different from all my classmates in theater school all these non-brown people you know who their families like oh our son is an actor we love him it's so great we come to all the shows it's so amazing and my, my parents come to my shows and they're just like what the hell is going on and well, at least just, they come at least they come <laughs> yeah yeah well yeah I feel like they not coming was would have been a little too, <laughs> they, they would have, they knew I would have been very upset, but no, I, I was, and I was hesitant. They didn't come to everything. They came to a few things, but, and I get it. I get where they come from. I, it's not something I begrudge them for, but it did cause a lot of rifts at a lot of times. So
0: yeah,
1: I get it. So you know it's funny though when I switched to filmmaking, they were like, okay. But when I told them I got my master, I was getting my master's degree. Then they were all. Here's the thing I learned about Bengali people, which is that as long as you go to school, they like it. <laughs> I was, I was, I was debating doing filmmaking without school, and they're like, ah. Uh. And then when I told them I'm getting my master, like, oh, we love you again. You're great. Go to school. School is is the best thing ever. Because
0: exactly. it's an it's easy designation. It's a, I'm sorry. Uh, it's an easy mm-hmm. designation to tell people like, oh, what does your son do? He ha- oh, he has a master's in, in film, as opposed to, oh, he's dabbling in,
1: oh, he's trying to figure it out, or he's dabbling in, in, in film. Yeah. Sorry. Yeah. Exactly. Yeah, that's it. That's exactly it. Because for, for them, because they, they come from a culture where education really is the key to everything. And it's true in general, even here, you know, education does make a difference, but I don't think they, sometimes they don't see the difference. Like going to medical school or law school, that's one thing. Going to film school, even I was against it for a long time, because I'm like, eh, you dump a lot of money towards something that's like, not like, you could do it other ways. But I actually came to that conclusion myself. I I wanted that, um, that environment. So, and it was affordable and, and very, um. Flexible. So that's why I did it. So, but yeah, brown people, they have a, as long as you go to school, (laughs) they, they like it, which is interesting. You could study whatever you want. You could study, I don't know, you could study freaking hypnosis if you wanted as a master's degree and they would, they would love it. Do um, you do you have uh, do you um do you, are you
0: is your goal is to stay in New York or do you feel like for a film you have to move out west?
1: I, that's not true anymore, um, okay. especially documentary. No, uh, New York is very much a hub for documentary because New York is also a center for news media as well. Hmm. Uh, you know, West Coast, uh, Los Angeles, big for Hollywood movies, but that change actually happened many years ago. New York, actually, I think it was like 2011, 10, something. New York had more TV pilot production than LA did, and that happened so. New York has a lot going on. Mm. Uh, LA is still the movie capital, Mm. but now television streaming is everywhere. You have Atlanta, you have-
0: Oh yeah, Atlanta, yeah. Atlanta's massive. I go to Atlanta a lot. My parents live there. And every time I get in an Uber, every single Uber driver works in film. Um, you know, does something in film and they're just driving Uber on the side. But yeah, Atlanta's film industry is massive. It's growing really fast. I think it's, I think, yeah, I think it's like third after Los Angeles, New York.
1: It is. It's the biggest, uh, what's his name? Uh, Tyler Perry has his own, like, he has his own empire down there. He's built up Atlanta a lot. There's, what was that show? Uh, what's the zombie show? I forget. Um, um AMC. Walking show. Dead. Walking Dead. Yeah. Walking Dead. Yeah. Walking Dead was in Atlanta forever. Yeah. Yeah. So, yeah. Uh, yeah. Atlanta's big. Chicago has a lot of going on. To... Vancouver for a long time had stuff. So, yeah, the, the the landscape is changing. I think in the future there's gonna be even more cities, more opportunities. But, I'm I'm comfortable in New York for now. The only problem in New York is it's expensive. <laughs> That's the only problem. But, you grew uh, up in Woodside,
0: Woodside. right? What, what what high school did you go to?
1: No, I grew up in Brooklyn. Um, oh, you grew
0: up in Brooklyn. Okay. What part of Brooklyn?
1: We moved around, but most of it was Midwood. Oh, okay. Lots of brown people there these days. When I grew up, there were a few. Uh, now yeah. I go back to visit my uncle there. Oh my God, there's so many now.
0: Yeah, yeah, Midwood. I, I, um, I went to have in FDR. Bro- I grew up in Brooklyn, New York, in Kensington. So not near, not too far from, uh, I mean, that's, Kensington's the hub. I mean, Midwood has some, uh, I guess, but Kensington is like
1: insane. Yeah yeah, Church um, Avenue there. yeah that's oh my crazy.
0: god yeah i got into Murrow. morrow high school where so what high school did you go to that's,
1: that, yeah yeah that, that's my that that, that that was the high school next to me i didn't go to that high school i went to um i went to stuyvesant there. oh wow yeah. so you're yeah. a genius yeah thank you <laughs> <laughs> i i try to tell people that but honestly having gone to stuyvesant and having seen the people there i'm like <laughs> if you were actually here <laughs> you would you know I, the thing about the thing about these specialized schools is that and it's changed these days but it's like they they prioritize a certain type of talent and so okay. if, they, if you're good at math science and yeah something else, it's great but i think in a way stuyvesant pushed me towards like creative outlets they have um, a really high
0: suicide rate too right they're always hearing about suicides at stuyvesant i've heard
1: i've heard that and like people doing drugs and people uh, yeah. like honestly I, when i was there i mean high school is a weird time in general but yeah, it was yeah. it was a very abnormal School.
0: <laughs> yeah, um, so. I guess that's the other thing. I just you know put put together with your parents is and you know you know I guess we were on this track, studious. Like I guess you know you have to be studious to get into and So you know track record of being very very studious. So I guess you know then jumping to film is like less studious. It's more you know obviously it's more art and less science. So probably caught them off guard too, right?
1: Yeah. Well, in whereas, much-
0: whereas whereas compared to somebody that like was a bad student their whole life, you know, and then they they want to go into film, they're like okay. That's, we expected him, right? Like, so it's well, a surprise.
1: Yeah. Yeah, even though film is not a science, there are aspects of it that are scientific. Okay. And technology, and so to be successful at film, you gotta be you gotta be quite studious. You know, when, when mm. I make my films, I'm very I thoroughly research everything. The amount of work you have. The thing about film is that it's a very it's a very unconventional career. Making mm. a living at it. What what I realize ultimately is not so much how hard you work or how much you study at something. It's the freelance nature of it. This is, and this is something I've grappled with in recent years. Um, no matter how talented you are, no matter how smart you are, you can find that your talent does not does not translate into material success in the way that if you were a doctor, if you were something more traditional, you can translate your talent and your excellence and you know academics. It can translate very seamlessly into mm. your profession. It could be that I, as an actor, and and I'll say this acting is probably uniquely one of the most unmeritocratic professions you'll ever find. And, you know, duh, you know, who doesn't know that it's freaking acting. It's like it's just like very good looking people are getting their parts and stuff like that. So there is that, but any freelance career, you're a writer, you're a, a singer, a musician, you're a, a, even a journalist. Like there's even some of the most talented people I find in these fields, they, they still struggle to find success that really justifies their br- that that is justified by their brilliance so it's hard for south asian parents to understand this to understand a kind of a risky freelance career um because mm. there's risk in it and risk is not something that you never talk about risk in a in a bengali family yeah it's um, very we're
0: very risk averse yep
1: yeah. Yeah. yeah it is how it is generally over there and when you're when when you're in a foreign environment when you're an immigrant in a place where you're not uh, don't the society is foreign to you 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 risk is a hard thing to justify yeah and your your future generations you it's hard to uh expect them to embark on risk but then you have to ask them like hey you know eventually nothing changes without risk anywhere so in a way things get stuck in their ways if if no one takes any risk and that's always the kind of conversation i've had you know with myself and you know with others so um yeah so you're right like you said, risk-averse is something that's really in our culture. And so I think that's um, some of the things people grapple with in these fields um, who are Bengali and whatnot. So, um, Do you see
0: yourself going back to acting? You're done with that? <laughs> uh,
1: you no, know, I, I, I enjoy acting. I think, well, part, one of the things that happened with me with acting is I kind of grew out of it. It kind of just became when you're an actor, the thing is about when you're an actor, you're. I found myself limited by other people's imaginations. Mm. I I went to an audition once, and they told me I had this fantastic audition, and then later, later they told me, uh oh, you know, he's he's a little too slight for the role, and he's he's too short and kind of like short and skinny, like he. And I went in for like this lead role, and I'm like, like you know, we wouldn't know who to cast opposite him, and I'm like, really? <laughs> and I'm like, and I get, I know how I knew, and I knew I was expecting this because I know how people cast. And this was in a theater play, so just so you know, in theater, when you stand on stage, you'll see. Interestingly, on camera, someone like Tom Cruise can be successful. Tom Cruise is like five seven. <laughs> we don't know how wow. she is. Yeah, but on stage, they want a leading man. You see the full frame of the guy. Mm. That's why you see like you see a lot of leading men in, in in Broadway. They're like tall, you know, people. And so, like one of the things I found is like ah, I'll always get typecast as like some young mm. naive guy something like, and like ah. I don't want to be trapped by other people's imagination. And I was getting a little tired of just reciting words written for me, you know. Mm. I wanted to write my own things. I wanted to say things I wanted to say. So I think that's what drew me towards out of acting into a film. But I still think acting is a incredible craft. And if you can make a living out of it and, and, and do it with extreme depth and, uh, and, 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 and versatility, it, it could be one of the most fulfilling careers you could have. It's just very hard to get. <laughs>
0: I uh, I recently had another uh, filmmaker on the podcast. He wrote, he directed a film called Purbashi. It's a short film, really interesting film also. I'll send it to you. Are you and uh, so I was just curious, are you connected with other
1: Bengali filmmakers in New ER? York? That's a great question. Right now, I wouldn't say I am, and I'm relatively new to full-on filmmaking. I will say this though. When I was an actor, I was an actor for like about nine years, right? This is strange to me, for the nine years or so that I was a, an actor, I never worked with a Bangladeshi actor or a Bangladeshi film. Wow! Wow! Um, I worked with one Bengali Indian mm. guy. It was a Bangladeshi, was Bengali Indian and then I worked with Indian actors and directors I worked with Pakistani actors but a Bangladeshi one and I racked through this over my mind like I went through my Rolodex like who did I work with I'm like I never worked uh-huh. with a Bangladeshi actor I'm like I was surprised because I'm like I'm from New York surely there must and I, and I know there are I'm, I'm I'm peripherally aware of some who are but I never actually crossed paths with them so I'm like oh, that that surprised me I'm like and I don't know maybe it could have just been just luck that I or unluck that I didn't but um I actually don't know that many bang when I say I say Bangladeshi, then there's also Bengali, which mm-hmm. I did a lot of Indian actors. But the Bangladeshi community is huge in in New York. But I haven't encountered any Bangladeshi actors that that to this day surprises me. So that surprises me. Well. Yeah. yeah. So yeah, I, I haven't worked with any Bengali or Bangladeshi filmmakers as of yet. But let's I'm hoping that changes very soon. So yeah, yeah I think one of the
0: issues is um, I think financing, and we I talked to this talked to. His name is Said. Said. I talked to him about this also. There's very little financing available, so I think that's one of the problems. I think. um, I think. So I'm actually. So you know, there's a lot of money around that finances projects, and I don't know if they're getting into the right hands uh, in terms of industry filmmakers. So that's that's a problem that he's talked about. He he had and. I'm, I'm, we're actually talking about a few things. I'm trying to get in, you know, because I think there's a lot of Bangladeshis that are in finance. I work in finance. There's a lot—not me personally—but I know a lot of Bangladeshis that actually would love to invest, um, but they don't know about people like you or people like Saeed, like that want to actually put in some backing behind some of these filmmakers. So I feel like there should be a network. Maybe there's maybe we should start some sort of network to put Bangladeshi filmmakers and
1: actors together. I think that's a. I think that's. I think that has to happen. I think it's a fantastic idea, um, because I alone, like I'm someone who. Almost even be afraid to like, because I'm one of those people. Like, I, you know, Bangladeshi people. You know, we, <laughs> if you ask for money, you kind of feel weird asking your your people for money to finance your film. So I'm kind of one of those like, ah, oh, I feel almost afraid. But I think we need to eventually normalize this because if we want to support artists from our community, um, we have to be able to build those networks and we have to have those resources there. Because oftentimes you'll find that non-Bengali people aren't so aren't so uh, keen to our ideas. You know, you go to mm. Hollywood. You- feature studios, they think, you know, why should I support this? Uh, you know, and even just to get your start, even if you want the big studios to, you know, to support you, you need to get something happening already and they're mm-hmm. not going to help you. So you need the ground level Bangladeshi grassroots people to give you your first start of your f- initial films so that you could have something that you could bring it to the, you could bring to Netflix, you could bring to um, Amazon or whatever big uh, producer studio. So I think in the nascent stage for filmmakers, to help us get our initial film started and to get ourselves out there, there's tremendous help that uh, we can cultivate, I think in our community. yeah,
0: well, it's a great conversation uh, we've been speaking for almost an hour which is which is crazy, so but uh, i would uh would not I feel like we can talk forever i'd love to have you back on at one point maybe um when you have another project but um yeah thanks for coming on i would love to share your work um you know with our community and uh, i'm excited excited to see how you know what other projects you have and also this i want to see are you going to enter this
1: uh, film into any competitions or, or grants or anything like that yeah, I'm, I'm looking at it right now i'm looking at sort of what's available i'm trying to see where this kind of fits in because you know it has to fit in into a certain type of festival um you know it's it's kind of a weird amalgam of like it's partly animation and probably not so yeah i'm mm. looking into that now and certainly if, if it gets somewhere um I'll, I'll blast that out right now it's playing just at the hunter uh showcase there but i'm gonna look into some short festivals where it's gonna go Um, So yeah, I'll definitely keep you guys posted on that. And also, I just want to say thank you to you. Um, I know you, Bengalis from New York is like a whole bunch of people and you do the podcast, but thanks for creating that, this platform. Because honestly, other than this, I don't know very many uh, platforms for Bengali people. So, you know, you've given, you've already given like kind of a a platform to all different kinds of people in our community, which I think is really needed. So, so thanks for doing that. Thank you. I appreciate it. Thanks. Bye. All right, man. The red and green
0: To be honest, with diamonds and pearls, yeah yeah, Bengalis and New York, all over the world, uh, it's the bony show. Hey, uh, can you handle this? Representing the boroughs where the bangles live, from the slang we spit to the gangs we with, it doesn't matter. We the essence of the Bangladesh. I said, hey, come on, can you handle this? Representing the boroughs where the Bengals live,